0: We're just about a month away from the start of the new Congress on January 3rd, and over the last few weeks, I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of the incoming freshmen. It's a busy time for them as they staff up, network with their colleagues, do interviews, and of course, attend new member orientation, much of it remotely. But it's also a great time to get an unvarnished view from them of their expectations before they begin their new jobs. This week, I caught up with
1: Richie Torres. I'm the congressman-elect for New York 15, the South Bronx, and I'm entering Congress after serving in the city council for seven years.
0: I started out by asking him to tell me a bit about his district and the people who live there.
1: New York 15 is the South Bronx, uh, which is said to be the poorest congressional district in America. It's arguably ground zero for racially concentrated poverty, uh, even before the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, when unemployment was at historic lows in New York City around 4%, the unemployment rate in the South Bronx could be as high as 15.6%. And that's before you factor in structural unemployment. Uh, more than half the residents in the South Bronx pay more than half their income toward their rent. And that's before you factor in the bare necessities of life like food and transportation, utilities and prescription drugs. Um, and even though it's It's known to be the poorest congressional district in America. I would argue that COVID-19 has shown the South Bronx to be the essential congressional district. It's the home of essential workers who put their lives on the line uh, so that most of us could safely shelter in place during the peak of the pandemic. Uh, Many in your audience will know that New York City at one point was the epicenter of the pandemic and the Bronx in particular, the South Bronx was the epicenter of the epicenter.
0: Right. And you grew up in this district.
1: My father is from Mott Haven. My mother's actually farther east in, in the Rogstack. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a okay. public housing development in the East Bronx, uh, right across the street from what eventually became Trump Goth
0: Can you talk about that and its influence on you and, and your decision? to be involved in public service. You're a pretty young person. Uh, You're in your early 30s. This isn't your first public office. You'd been in the New York City Council. So if you could talk about those sort of times that you had growing up and, and how it brought you to this point.
1: It all began in the Bronx. You know, I spent most of my life in poverty. I was raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. And I grew up in public housing, uh, living in conditions of mold and mildew leaks and lead without consistent heat and hot water in the winter. And I think my life is something of a metaphor because I grew up right across the street from Ferry Point Park, which is home to Trump Golf Course. And as I saw the conditions in my own home get worse every day, the government had invested more than hundred billion dollars in a golf course, ultimately named after Donald Trump. And I remember wondering to myself at the time, what does it say about our society that we're willing to invest more money in a golf course than in the homes of low income, black and brown Americans. And so that experience of inequality in the shadow of Trump golf course uh, is what inspired me first to become a housing organizer. And then eventually I took the leap of faith and I ran for public office. You know, I was 24, openly LGBTQ in a borough that had no LGBTQ elected officials. I had no ties to the dynasties of Bronx politics, no ties to the political establishment, but I was young and energetic and I knocked on thousands of doors. I went into people's homes, I heard their stories and I won my first campaign, largely on the strength of door-to-door face-to-face campaigning. I became the first openly LGBTQ elected official from the Bronx. But what's remarkable is that seven years before then, I was at the lowest point in my life. I had dropped out of college. I found myself struggling with depression and abusing substances. I had lost my best friend to an opioid overdose. I was struggling with uh, my sexual identity. And there were moments when I thought of taking my own life because the world around me had collapsed. And I never thought seven years later I would become the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And then seven years after that, I would become a member of the United States Congress.
0: Talk about your decision to be as open as you are, not just your struggle with opioid addiction, as you pointed out, trying to reconcile your sexual identity, but sharing that. I mean, you, when you decide to go public office, obviously you become a public figure, but they are of yourself you don't have to share, and you chose to do that. Why?
1: You know, I suspect that I've been shaped by the experience of Of coming out i feel like the process of coming out as an lgbtq person the integrity it demands from you teaches you an ethic of radical authenticity it teaches you how to be honest and open about who you are and so that's an ethic that i've applied to every aspect of my life both political and personal and i feel like as a public figure i want to inspire hope i want to represent the hope that those struggling with depression with mental illness uh, can overcome the odds and have a fighting chance at a decent life. And I feel I have an obligation to do my part in breaking the stigma and the shame that too often surrounds mental illness. You know, I have no shame in admitting that I struggle with depression, that I take an antidepressant every day, and that I'm living proof that mental health care can enable you to lead a productive life, both as a person and as a professional. And, and for me, you know, healthcare is a human right. And that's especially true of mental health care.
0: You are not just the first openly gay member of Congress from the Bronx. You're the first openly gay Afro-Latino member of Congress ever. And earlier this summer, you had written an op-ed where you criticized the Congressional Black Caucus for not allowing you to be both a member of the CBC as well as a men- member of the Hispanic Caucus. And I know over the summer there was reporting that you and the chairwoman of the CBC were sitting down to talk about this. Um, have you resolved this? And, and are you going to be a member of both of those caucuses?
1: The issues resolved, and I intend to join both caucuses. You know, and you'd be
0: the first person to do this.
1: To my knowledge, I would be the first person. To be a
0: member of both. Yeah. To, and yeah. what do you think that's that's going to allow you to do?
1: It will allow me first to embrace the full diversity and intersectionality of who I am and to represent my constituents more effectively. And it matters whether you're in the room. And the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus are among the most powerful rooms of decision-making in the United States Congress. And to be a member of both of those rooms uh, is an enormous service to my constituents. So it will only strengthen my ability to represent the people of the South Bronx.
0: So you'll be a freshman member. Democrats still have the majority, a slimmer one than was expected, but a majority. So um, the Democratic Party will be in a position of power. But it's not clear yet what's going on in the Senate Talk about some of your expectations going forward, especially if Democrats don't have complete control of Washington and what things you think the Biden administration should be pushing for no matter what.
1: Well, my expectations depend on control of the Senate, right? If if the Democrats win control of the Senate, then I would make a strong case that we need to build democratic power as a precondition for bold progressive policymaking. I would advocate immediately legislating statehood for both D.C. and Puerto Rico, which would likely yield four new Democratic U.S. senators and would counterbalance the structural bias that both the Electoral College and the U.S. Senate has against the Democratic Party. So that, to me, is a precondition for bold progressive governance in an age of divided government. I would argue that we should focus on just bread and butter issues. You know, one issue about which I'm passionate is the child tax credit. The structure of the child tax credit is so regressive at the moment that it excludes a third of American families, the poorest families. And the regressivity of the child tax credit is most egregious in the South Bronx, where two-thirds of families are excluded from the full benefit. And so if we were to extend the child tax credit, to the poorest families in America, we would cut child poverty by 40%.
0: This seems like one of those issues, though, that whether Democrats are in charge of all of Washington, in other words, whether they have majority in the Senate or not, this seems like something that could get bipartisan support, does it not?
1: Potentially. I mean, you know, one can never underestimate the obstructionism of the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell, but there could conceivably be a bipartisan consensus for the child tax credit because it's a tool for strengthening American families.
0: What do you think of the picks that the president-elect has put forward thus far in general, but also since we're on the issue of the economy, specifically on his picks for Treasury Secretary and other economic advisors?
1: I am supportive of President-elect Biden's administration picks. I, 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 there's a clearly a recognition on their part that the priority has to be to stimulate the economy in a time of depression level unemployment. Uh, the The main priority has to be to put people back to work and to put pocket money in the pockets of working families and working people, and to ensure that our state and local governments have economic relief. You know, it, I'm from New York and we've never had a moment in the history of our state where the state government and the local government and the public transit system were all caught in an ever-deepening fiscal crisis. Like, without an infusion of federal funding, America's largest city, New York City, is in danger of becoming a shadow of its former self. So I have full confidence that the Biden administration, the future Biden administration, recognizes the need to support our families, our small businesses, and our state and local governments, as well as our public transit systems.
0: Did you want to see... uh, some members of that team who come from a more progressive background, come from outside of sort of traditional Washington or, you know, sort of establishment backgrounds?
1: I want a team that is both progressive and effective. And the team he's put together, President-elect Biden has put together, largely passes the test. Um, This is a team that recognizes the need to sustain and strengthen the social safety net. So I'm largely pleased with the team. And look, there's a mass mobilization in America in favor of a progressive agenda. There's no doubt in my mind that the Biden administration is going to be responsive to that movement.
0: As you probably know, there's a narrative that's been uh, developing, especially post-election, that there is something of a, a rift or a battle for the soul of the party, of the Democratic Party, between the moderates and the more progressive members, and it it sort of burst into view post election with some moderate members criticizing liberal ones for pushing an agenda that they say lost them seats in the election. What do you make of all of this? How real is it?
1: There, there's certainly a divide uh, within the party. Um, I would argue that the central divide. In the democratic party is not between moderates and progressives it's more between what i call purist and pluralist right there are purists who are intent on ideologically purifying the party right? challenging incumbents who are thought to be too ideologically impure to effectuate the kind of structural change the country needs and then there were pluralists who recognize that the democratic party has no choice but to be a big tent in order to remain Competitives in purple districts and make majorities. Uh, you know, I think purists tend to be movement progressives, but not all progressives are purists. There, there are plenty of progressives in Congress who operate within the system.
0: Do you put yourself in that category?
1: I do. I would identify myself as a progressive and a pluralist.
0: And have you been meeting with both? I don't want to call it both sides, but you've been meeting with progressives, moderate, other members of the Democratic caucus. I know within your class, it's, you're a pretty small freshman class, but have you met folks beyond that and had conversations on your own with them?
1: We have. It's challenging in a, in a world of COVID, but I've had yeah. conversations within my freshman class and across the ideological spectrum within, largely within the Democratic Party You know, Washington is about relationships. You're only as strong as the relationships you have, and you have to build a broad cross section of relationships in order to be effective in Washington, D.C. So it's been a priority of mine to build relationships with both moderates and progressives, pluralist and purist uh, Democrats of of every
0: ilk. Well, Congressman-elect, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Please stay safe, and uh, we'll see you here in Washington soon enough.
1: It was a pleasure. Take care.
0: Richie Torres is the congressman-elect for New York's 15th Congressional District.